Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Mornings Without Carmen here on the 28th of January. Carmen, as you know, if you listen regularly, has been off for this week. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in this week, having a delightful time with all of you, talking about so many of the different news headlines of the day, but also having some great authors in this week, some things that can help in our discipleship journey, and just covering any number of points that Carmen typically does here week in and week out. We had a chance to text back and forth yesterday again. Things are going well for her. Nice to get a week off. Well-deserved. It's been a while. And of course, happy to be in studio with Paul Perot as well. It's been, you just do such a great job bringing all of these different uh, people into the show day in and day out, including Ben Johnson, who we'll bring in in just a moment, but just an incredible series of guests from around the country that that really bring a diversity of perspectives into all of these kingdom conversations. Well, I I think we've actually gone a little around the world, at least partway around, because we've talked to a friend of yours from from Scotland we this week. We have indeed, indeed. And, yeah, it came from us right We're going to talk to somebody else this uh, today who spent some time like you in Scotland. He did. The president of Asbury Seminary will be with us at the second half of this first hour, Timothy Tennant, to talk a little bit about a theology of the body and for the body, a new book that he's come out with. And so it should be some pretty interesting yep. things. But, of course, on Thursday morning, uh, we have our regular, our, our rock in this spot. And typically, Ben doesn't come in until maybe about uh, 10 minutes past the hour. But I thought I'd bring Ben Johnson in from the Acton Institute a little early because there are so many headlines to cover. And one specifically really got my attention. Uh, ben, good morning. Glad to have you with us here. Good to be with you. If, if I can be with Carmen, uh, you are you are someone I would love to speak with, as always. <laughs> Appreciate it. It's been uh, fun to be friends all of these years, Ben. And I see uh, maybe we just got a couple minutes here, but pretty big headlines that I suppose somebody who would be considered the grandfather of the pro-life movement, Joseph Scheidler, died uh, a little over a week ago now. And uh, he really was the one that sort of set the foundation for the, the pro-life movement insofar as we experience it and understand it today. He did, and I got to know Joe personally. He was a wonderful man, wonderful sense of humor, and his son Eric uh, managed to tell me that even on his deathbed, he was cracking jokes <laughs> up until the very end. So uh, he, he that doesn't come across, for example, in the New York Times uh, obituary that it wrote of him. But uh, Joe was uh, a very deep and devout uh, believer, and he marched with Martin Luther King Jr. He saw the racial injustice, and then when uh, the Supreme Court had its Roe versus Wade decision in 1973, he saw that as another facet of the same kind of injustice. So he brought those nonviolent organizing tactics into the pro-life movement. He was always nonviolent in every conceivable way, but he was highly persuasive. Uh, he was he was engaging, and he was so uh, effective at what he did that he was sued by the National Organization for Women in 1986, and the court case went on for 28 years years. Wow. Uh, the, the Now actually backed out of the case and other people came in, uh, other prosecutors came in and pushed the case. He was uh, accused of uh, breaking the RICO statute, which is what you use against the mafia. So uh, you, you, the law was somewhat twisted here, to say the least. Ultimately, the Supreme Court overruled the case uh, three separate times before they dropped the case. 
And uh, so he, he did prevail. But in the meantime, he had to put his house up for collateral, uh, all in order to save the lives of the unborn. Uh, he is someone who has a crown waiting for him in heaven, and uh, may, may God bless his memory. Oh, I think that's really well said, Ben, really well said. You can see from the pictures of him that he was the kind of person that seemed to just have that little twinkle in his eye and that delight in his step, even as he dealt with some really, really difficult issues in this world. He seemed to be anchored somewhere uh, outside of this world as he worked within the world. So, yes, indeed. Rest in peace, Joseph Scheidler. Thanks for the great sort of eulogy this morning, Ben. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we've got a lot more to cover within the headlines of the day. Welcome to Mornings Without Carmen here for the 28th of January. Well, I guess you can officially be a part of the show now that we played your walk-up music, Ben. Well, it's good to be good to be back on in, a, in my official capacity. Yeah, I know, right? Thanks for the unofficial words. That was very helpful at the top of the hour. But, boy, is there a lot to cover. And I admit, Ben, that uh, post-election, I, I've kind of gone through a detox phase when it relates to the news and try to just sort of clean everything out in a, in a spiritual and emotional sauna, I suppose, and, and just get it all out of me on some level. But I have followed a little bit of these first maybe 10-ish days or so, not quite, of the new administration coming in with President Biden. And what I've seen is consistent with what I note uh, that we're going to talk about a little bit today is that there's been quite a bit of language that seems pretty centrist, that there is an attempt, political or otherwise, to to do some of the unifying things that he talked about at his inauguration, inauguration speech. But what we see maybe happening, actually, independent of the language being used is some pretty liberal policies coming into play. I'm not neither saying bad nor good about all of the different policies, although I think like any policy, it should and could be subject to scrutiny. At the very least, we're seeing an upending of a lot of the policies of where we've seen in the last four years. And that's going to certainly play itself out. I mean, history is going to be the judge of where we go here. I'm glad you're detoxing from the news. I wish the news would detox. <laughs> right. Make it much we're talking about yeah, in this country. Indeed. And yeah, we'll talk about the trust of the media, too, in a little bit. But, yeah, it's, that's what I'm noticing now from the news. So tell us what you're noticing in these first maybe eight-ish or so days. You hit it on the head. You know, Joe Biden uh, threw out his campaign, and as soon as the election was over, he said, I will work as hard for people who didn't vote for me as people who voted for me. So he's had this kind of rhetoric that he's going to be a unifying figure I think that if you tap down into the deepest heart of Joe Biden, that's really who he is. Yeah. Uh, he would really genuinely like to be that figure uh, who can who can unite. The problem is Joe Biden is a shapeshifter, uh, not in the X-Files sense, but in, in the political <laughs> sense that, uh, you know, he, he genuinely is willing to adapt himself like water to the glass to whatever shape he has to in order to, to remain in power. In the 1970s, that meant cutting deals with segregationists. Today, it means uh, cutting deals with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders. And so, you know, in his heart of hearts, he wants to be a unifying figure, but he would really rather be president than be a unifying figure. So, uh, you know, he's he has done what he needs to do in order to keep his caucus in line. And uh, that has meant things like uh, uh, some of the things you've mentioned are, are simply undoing Trump policies like the travel ban and so on. Uh, rejoining the World Health Organization, even though there's been no reform to the organization, which covered up the spread uh, on behalf of the Chinese government for a very long time. He simply rejoined without any kind of change or reform to that uh, to that organization whatsoever. But then the underlying policies 
uh, have been very far to the left. Uh, for example, he's appointed an acolyte of Elizabeth Warren, Rohit Chopra, to head the uh, uh, Consumer Finance Bureau. So that's that's something that she created, and uh, the CF uh, that that organization has been uh, very much involved in overregulating. It's been involved in uh, questions that have gone before the Supreme Court about its very structure and its anti-democratic uh, creation. So uh, she that is uh, that's an area where he is very far to the left. His, his very first uh, bill that he introduced to Congress, as opposed to the ones that Congress have introduced on their own, is an amnesty bill for uh, between 11 and, according to Yale University, 29 million uh, illegal immigrants. And uh, that, that bill is, uh, is something that uh, the American people have largely expressed their, uh, their disinterest in time and time again, going back to at least 2006. And, and yet it keeps coming up because uh, the, the uh, issue really came to the forefront with someone who is an advisor to uh, to uh, Barack Obama, a man named Alicio Medina, who is chair of the Democratic Socialists of America. He was an advisor to the Obama National Latino Advisory Committee. And he said, uh, if we can reform the immigration laws, it puts 12 million new people on the path to citizenship and eventually voters. Can you imagine if the same ratio, two out of three, we get eight million new voters, that is to say two out of three uh, recent immigrants vote for the Democratic Party. He said, can you imagine if we get the same ratio, two out of three, if we get eight million new voters that will be voting, we'll create a governing coalition for the long term, not for an election cycle. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the sort of uh, reality behind all of this, is that there is an interest in a structural change. You had to that Muriel Bowser, the mayor of Washington, D.C., saying she wants statehood in the first hundred days, and you have uh, potentially changing the structure of government itself uh, in order to uh, to change uh, what's going on in Washington, and and then you have the impeachment of a former president going on as well. Yeah, Ben. I you know maybe fairly or unfairly, I tend to read the through the lens of of power. Why? What kind of power are people seeking in Washington D.C. related to their policy? And yeah, independent of sound bites that have to do with things like compassion or or sort of the virtues and character that we all desire. Uh, again, maybe I've become overly cynical in saying these are these are tend to be power plays. But w if I read the tea leaves a little bit in terms of what we see in some of these policies, and again, the, the Republicans are <laughs> are hardly exempt from power plays within Washington D.C. But you see the desire for additional statehood and more senators, and looking at the Supreme Court and and bringing uh, amnesty into play. That they're not they're not dumb. If this is about power and, and shaping the arc of the future of our country, the political leaders in Washington D.C. really know how to play that game. And and this is a a means to cement something into the future that won't get uh, so easily overturned. Maybe four years from now, eight years from now, twelve years from now. You're right. Uh, Republicans are as guilty as anyone. There's plenty of blame to go around. Generally, the Republicans' interest is in, uh, for example, spreading uh, government largesse to uh, defense contractors and people who are part of their coalition. But it's usually more economic. Right. This is we're talking about a structural change to the rules that would erase Americans' ability to influence their own government. So that's that's highly concerning. I, I think it is too, Ben. And I think I, I had a chance to talk with a person overseas about two days ago, and, and he said that Scotland became secularized so unbelievably quickly, and that Christianity went from something that was upheld as even if you weren't a Christian, it was seen sort of as a, as a virtuous pathway in life. And it went from that to being quite a bit of antagonism towards Christianity, even within a generation. And I don't know if you, how you're reading things into the future, but you can see that flip happening because there is so much secularization and trust in government in terms of caring for our needs within some of the policies. 
critical theory is very much a part of this, and uh, the Biden administration has signed on from his executive orders in his very first day, uh, endorsing what he calls equity as opposed to equality. Uh, critical theory holds that whatever group is dominant is actually oppressing others, regardless of whether they intend to or not. Right. There's no way to escape it. And so Christians are on the majority side of that, which means they are the oppressors in the eyes of critical theory, regardless of the fact that uh, if it weren't for Christianity, Christianity has within itself, uh, it generated the idea of religious liberty going all the way back to the patristic fathers, that uh, if you have a forced faith, it is no faith. You have to freely accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Otherwise, you are not saved. You are not truly a Christian. So uh, Christians are demonized as part of this critical theory that we were part of the warp and woof of the uh, the structural discrimination that took place for generations. And so Christians are going to be demonized as this continues uh, simply by a guilt through association. Mm, and ben, uh, history is certainly littered with uh, Christians being a majority or minority and, and what we can see when Christians do move to minority status and it doesn't work to try to uh, bring flourishing through the governmental systems of the world, then uh, oftentimes Christians are a scapegoat for that. So you can see a situation moving forward that we at least need to think about and be prepared for that in moving from majority to minority status, perhaps in the next generation, that then you can also move from not being ignored, but being scapegoated as for the issues that might come up. So lots to think about in terms of preparing and equipping us to continue to be believers in our country, whatever form our country takes moving forward. We've got to leave it there for now, take a short break and come back. And Ben, I definitely want to ask you about the lack of media trust, because we see some headlines where the trust in the media, some of the ambassadors of that, which is news in our country, seems to be at an all-time low. So thanks for joining us here on Mornings Without Carmen. We'll be back in just a moment with more from Ben Johnson. It's about 20 minutes after the top of the hour. This is Mornings Without Carmen and Ben Johnson. You know, I feel real privileged here to get an extra 90 seconds at the break to just get a bit of your wisdom. It's really uh, just what you bring to the table related to a look at our headlines economically and politically through faith is just so helpful. So appreciate, again, just your diligence to be part of this show week in and week out. Well, it's always a joy to be able to uh, reconnect with you. Of course, uh, as as the morning host, I got to know you, and uh, the friendship means a great deal to me. So may God bless all you do. Yeah, thank you, Mutual. Well, we see that trust in the media, not exactly shockingly, is at an all-time low. And I think people can sort of sniff out that there's quite a bit of agenda w- with whatever alleged media outlet that they might watch. And uh, and we're seeing that play itself out where I think there's more than just me that are kind of detoxing from listening to the talking heads day in and day out. Thankfully, yes. Uh, you know, this is a kind of a wake-up call for America. The the way that the media have covered uh, U.S. politics, and simply not for the last four years. This isn't something that is unique to the Trump administration, although I think that really brought it to a head. This is something that's been going on since uh, at least the 1970s, yeah. 80s. You can go back to Walter Cronkite's coverage of the Tet Offensive uh, and uh, the misleading of the American public about how influential that was in terms of the Vietnam conflict and overall military perspective to talk about how long this has been going on. But this uh, this new poll is really uh, eye-opening. 50%, 56% of Americans say journalists and reporters are purposely trying to mislead people by saying things they know are, quote, false or gross exaggerations. So it's, it's not simply that they don't believe the media or they think that they're stretching or coloring the uh, the impact, but that, in fact, they are they're creating it out of whole cloth. And you have 58% of Americans who say that they're more interested in supporting an ideology. And only 18% of Republicans, that is less than one in five Republicans, trust the media. 
when I heard that statistic, I thought, how could it possibly be that high? Uh, it, it, it seems as though the, the media have uh, simply declared openly what has been the, the content of their coverage for a very long time. Uh, I, I have read older reports uh, from the uh, from the very long uh, before times where the media would simply report what someone said and let you consider uh, whether you agree or disagree. That's all been replaced by analysis. Uh, matter of fact, uh, at one point I tweeted the exact structure of, of the way that uh, a typical AP story is covered in order to give bias. But generally, bias comes through a couple of different ways. It comes through framing of the issue, comes through selection of experts, and it comes through distortion of uh, opponent, opposing arguments and also of, uh, of, of titles that are used. So, for example, we were speaking about uh, Joe Scheidler of Blessed Memory a moment ago. Joe Scheidler was always anti-abortion. Uh, he was always uh, anti-choice uh, was a term that uh, so-called neutral media outlets would use. On the other hand, people who believe that uh, taxpayers should have no choice about funding abortion are always spoken of as pro-choice. Choice is a very positive word. Anti-choice is a very negative word. Uh, and uh, yet the caricature that has broken out about someone that I, I know personally in his works uh, sort of shines a light on the greater media bias that is going on. Uh, there is a, a mislabeling of political opponents, a misperception of what it is that they stand for. And then you selectively quote people uh, who will try and knock it down and present mm. uh, their their uh, opinion as though it were facts. So I'm glad that the American people are finally catching on to this. What is uh, so chilling about all this is the fact that the media desperately want to shut down alternative outlets, outlets like uh, this radio station, when they talk about so-called disinformation. And disinformation is simply anything that contradicts their narrative. Mm -hmm. So their narrative is the facts. And uh, organizations like this one and this this program, which present facts, that undermine that narrative are accused of uh, spreading lies and undermining our republic. It couldn't be more couldn't be more false, and they couldn't have done anything more to deserve this low rating. Yeah, and I think less people poo-poo this as being overly cynical about uh, the choices that newsrooms make. Uh, being a member of the media, as you have been, and I know I have been, I remember when I was writing for the National Basketball Association covering the Minnesota Timberwolves, and I would sit courtside for NBA.com, and I, I would think there, Ben, as I'm watching this game unfold, and it's my job to somehow report the details of the game to the reading audience who would be on the NBA uh, website later that night. And I, I would sit there and think, gosh, I can shape this game one way or the other. This can be, even though it was a loss, it could be sort of a successful move forward for the Timberwolves, or it could be an abysmal failure. And I could pick out some of the details of the game out of those two hours and shape my story with facts that actually happened, but just the very kinds of facts that I chose would shape the perception of the story. And, and I know that, you know, there's the journalistic integrity says you're not to do that. And so we try to shy away from that. But I fear that there's been a significant loss of journalistic integrity. And I, and I know journalists from major news outlets say, you know, I got into journalism to help shape people's perception of our country. So I don't think we're overly cynical by suggesting that this is not whichever outlet you're watching, always a fair minded look at things. Just the very selection of facts shapes the story about what happens. When I was in journalism school, and when I asked other students there, why is it that you decided to become a journalist, you know, first day banter between students, right. I inevitably got the same answer. I want to change the world. Uh, if you want to change the world, go and do something that changes the world. <laughs> Don't shape the way that right. people perceive what other people are actually doing uh, shapes the world. But that's, that's what journalism has become. Uh, it's a form of activism disguised as journalism, and uh, I'm glad that the American people are seeing through it. Uh, it is just concerning to me that uh, there's this effort to crack down 
on anyone who disagrees with that narrative as though they're spewing uh, lies and undermining our civic foundations, when in fact uh, all that we're doing is simply undermining uh, their point of view, which has been codified as though it's the official party line. That's that's more in line with the history of the Soviet Union. It's not part of the First Amendment. Mm. Ben, we got to leave it right there for this morning. Ben, I'm wondering if you'd allow me to just sort of call you each night at about eight o'clock, and instead of watching news, you just kind of you, you distill the information for the day, and I get it from you. How would that go? I would never say no to you calling me for any reason. <laughs> so it's it's always good to hear from you, Peter. You too, Ben. Have a great rest of the day and rest of the weekend. So fun to catch up, and uh, thanks again for all that you do. We'll leave it right there uh, and come back here in a couple minutes for some bottom of the hour news. And looking forward as well to the next interview in the second half an hour, where we talk with Dr. Timothy Tennant about a theology of the body to help sort of cut through the fog of all of these questions about sexuality and gender and get back to the building blocks of our faith in terms of how we're designed by God. So stay with us. It's gonna be a great interview next here on Mornings Without Carmen. No time for a little lighter news here, Paul Perot. And I don't know if you're a spicy guy. You like spicy food? Uh, a little bit of spice, not a lot. Yeah, I once made a, a devastating error and decided to go through an initiation process with Buffalo Wild Wings chicken wings, where my buddy said in order to be fully initiated into the chicken wing, you have to eat the hottest version of this. They have that thermometer on their menu, right? And let's yeah. just say yeah. that, um, that I can still remember how my entire digestion system felt with the, with the hottest version. But that pales in comparison to a man breaking the world record for eating Carolina Carolina Reaper chili peppers oh. out of London, Ontario. These aren't even real natural peppers, from what I understand. They're sort of hybrid created. They're hybrid kinds and of peppers. It's so hot. Oh, oh. So, so Mike Jack must have been a little bored during the COVID lockdown in London, Ontario. He downed three such pe- peppers in 9.72 seconds. Each pepper had to weigh at least 0.18 ounces. So it wasn't just like a little slice of, of pepper. It was the real deal yeah, the real kind deal. of pepper. At some point, I'd love to talk with Mike Jack how he's feeling maybe some you know week later or so on this. I can't imagine making that mistake. I, It's not worth the world record book. It it's is. just not <laughs> worth it. Uh, maybe it might be. If you, if you could be etched in history and world records for peppers, I might, oh. might take a go. But I'll rethink that during the break here. Uh, coming up in just a couple minutes, we'll be joined by Dr. Timothy Tennant, again with his new book, Theology of the Body. It's for the body. And uh, he'll help us get into some of the building blocks of how to understand our, our physical self, our body, our sexuality, and our gender, and sort of cut through the fog. So looking forward to that next year on Mornings Without Carmen. Change is tough, and usually change creates all kinds of conflict. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. God has called you as a parent to work toward better things for your family, even if that means instigating stuff that makes your kids uncomfortable. You're standing for good, honorable, and necessary things that will make your home a better place to live in today and years in the future. In fact, your decisions may even impact the family for generations. So let the conflict come. I'd even encourage you to embrace conflict. Bring it on. It's a sign that real change is happening. You have the power to point your family in the right direction. So be encouraged, Mom and Dad. God's working through you, even in conflict. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store.
It is about 23 minutes before the top of the hour. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge, who's having a lovely week off here away from the show Mornings with Carmen, and delighted to be joined at this time by Dr. Timothy Tennant, who is the president of Asbury Theological Seminary, as well as a professor of world Christianity, released a book titled For the Body. Good morning, Timothy. Good morning. Good to be with you. Yeah, great to be with you as well. You were telling me is off the air. You, you and I both share our, uh, our graduation from a place in Scotland, the University of Edinburgh. I had studied in the same school. Didn't realize that uh, when we when we booked you as a guest here. But you were saying that they were celebrating over there 175 years uh, of Christianity within the institution, and it just makes me think, Timothy, in the midst of all of what seems so shifting and changing and evolving and adapting all the time in our world, that there is this historic story that has been carried on for generations. Absolutely. Of course, Edinburgh particularly has a great heritage for uh, missions training, mission studies, and I'm glad to uh, know that um, we had this connection. That's wonderful. And of course, being in Scotland is a great place to be, isn't it? It really is. We miss being able to be there for the because of the shutdown. But it just it does anchor you in sort of again a, a bigger story than sometimes our lives can feel. So good. Well, thanks for joining us. I know this book that you released is really important, called "For the Body." I have been teaching gender sexuality for the better part of 13 years, and boy, have things changed in those 13 years. And and the questions that come up are not always the simplest of questions, and especially when it comes to the idea of, of what is healthy and whole sexuality. What does it mean that our physical body participates in this world around us? And, and you've done such a good job in this book of identifying some of the building blocks that, that can help us cut through the fog. So if I was asked the question, how do we understand this topic of body and sexuality and gender, what would be maybe an initial building block you'd want to step with? Well, I think the initial building block is actually to take a uh, – our own cue from Jesus, who, uh, when asked about a very, in his day, controversial question on sexuality, said, let's go back to the beginning. Mm. And so the book actually goes back to creation itself and starts out with a foundation of the goodness of creation. God's the creator, and seven times in Genesis 1, he calls the creation good. And reasserting the goodness of our bodies uh, is a wonderful, wonderful truth for all Christians to uh, begin building on. And it seems like when we sort of think of ourselves, and maybe it's because we know that our, our passions and desires are often inconsistent with we know that that is good, but that doesn't take away from the the idea that we come from the hand of a good God. Is that is that part of reshaping our sense of self a bit, Timothy, is recognizing, hang on, we might be a bit messed up in this, but let's let's remember we come from the hand of a good God. Absolutely. We're all creating the image of God, and even in our brokenness, we still, as, as Calvin said, we still walk the world where the, the mirror is shattered, but the mirror is still there. And so uh, that's the great, one of the great ways that God affirms the whole human race, because we are, we do reflect his glory, even in fragmented ways. And where do we go from there once we sort of understand that perhaps uh, we, we have come from a hand of good, of the good God, we're capable of reflecting his glory? How do we sort of jump into the waters of these difficult topics? Well, then we begin to realize that our bodies themselves are actually talking to us, and we haven't really listened well to our bodies. And so I, I look at the body uh, theologically as a pointer or an icon pointing to spiritual mysteries. So, for example, the body uh, is when God created us, he already was preparing the body for that he would enter the world in a human body. So our bodies are pointers to the incarnation. That's what's said and quoted by Jesus in Psalm 40, a body you have prepared for me. So we believe that our bodies are actually meant to be uh, iconic representations of the very incarnation. And if you think about all the means of grace, baptism, the Eucharist, the you know hearing God's word, 
uh, even serving the poor, all of that happens through our bodies. We're baptized in our bodies. We take Eucharist in our bodies. We hear sermons with our ears. We preach the God's word with our mouths. Every means of grace by which God communicates his grace to us happens in and through the body. So part of the reclamation of the body is realizing the, the soundness that God has laid out the body as the bridge to communicate his grace to us. So in fairness, it sounds like what you're suggesting is the idea that our body, however failing in this in this perishably sown seed that it might be, our body is still the chosen vessel in which we can kind of embody God's wonder and delight and beauty and laughter and all of these different things in the world. And so instead of maybe uh, shaming our body, we need to embrace the idea that though it is failing, it is the vehicle that we can use in this uh, current age. Absolutely. We live in an age which uh, heaps shame upon the body. I spent a whole chapter on the way the advertising uh, is designed to, to shame people's bodies. And we have a lot of self-hatred toward the body. Don't, we don't trust the body. And so uh, a reorientation to biblical vision, this glorious vision, does make us see our bodies in a positive light. So how do we recapture even just that part of it with our messaging? Because I know people are probably often uncomfortable with their bodies or feel out of place in their bodies. I, I know for me, let's just say, uh, Dr. Tennant, that I could probably lose 10 pounds and feel a little bit better <laughs> about life in general. I've got a few more wrinkles than I otherwise might. But how do we understand an appreciation for the body? And, and even as it does begin to fail as we get older, uh, instead of being burdened by it, still continue to be grateful for it. Because it does help us interact in the world around us, obviously. We can't do it without it. Yeah, so I think our, our culture, you know, obviously that we have to start very, very young by understanding the messages that are sent about our bodies to our culture, which tells us we don't look like this or that. And I even say, you know, we live in the world where even the models that are portrayed on Glamour magazines, even they are not uh, approved. They have to be airbrushed in certain ways. So you actually have a shaming even goes upon people like that. And so I think part of the uh, is good catechesis where the church has to reclaim uh, a biblical view of the body. So this is there's no easy fix here, Peter. This is not something that uh, we can just simply message out tomorrow. It's all done. This is a long-term work of the church to reestablish the biblical view of the body. And even in the even as, as we age, Paul says we're renewed day by day, but, but we're preparing for the resurrection body. Mm. So even in eternity, God reconstitutes our bodies. So the body is never something that's discarded, but is always renewed and is vivified because that's how God communicates his grace to us. I'm mindful as you're talking, uh, Timothy, about C.S. Lewis's quote that says that uh, if, if you could see somebody on the other side when they've been raised imperishable and uh, and they've walked out this journey of life and hope and faith in this world, however failing it might be, if you could see them on the other side, they would be a creature of such beauty that you'd be strongly tempted to worship them, that there is a, a beauty inherent in our, in our physical space that God invites us into. And, and we grow towards that. But you, you referenced the church a minute ago. I know that with my young people here at the University of Northwest, Western St. Paul, one of the common experiences they've had is that we really haven't addressed these kinds of topics within the church very often. And, and so there, there is sort of a thin view of all of this. Uh, and, and you reference the church has a lot of work to do. What would you see as being some helpful steps to, to providing a foundation for our young people? I think what happened is the church, and I think most of the Protestants are guilty of this a little more than the Roman Catholics, but I think the Protestants especially have viewed uh, our cultural challenges as separate issues. You know, so the 1960s Woodstock generation introduced the whole sexual revolution, and at the 70s we're fighting abortion with Roe versus Wade, and the 80s it was the rise of adultery and broken homes, and then 
went to digital pornography in the 90s and violent video games. I mean, it goes right down the line, uh, doctors such as suicide, et cetera. So the point is we saw, we thought we were fighting 15 different issues. And so the churches had a lot of energy and talk and conversation about a number of issues where the culture just thinks we're just against everything imaginable. And yet uh, part of this book is trying to say, actually, we're, this is not about 15 issues. It's about one issue. Mm. It's the body. It's all these issues connect to the, a Christian vision of the body. So part of the church's job is, I think, to look beyond the issues which we have talked about and say, what is the underlying theological challenge which gives rise to digital pornography and everything else, gender reassignment, you name it. And it's actually how we understand the body. Well, certainly after a break in just a minute, I'm going to want to get more into the gender and sexuality. But one more piece on this. I would say you, you used that word catechesis just a little bit ago, and it's the idea of simply walking through a, a series of instructions that help us understand life, faith, person, whatever it might be. And I, do you think we underestimate at times how many messages are people in this world, especially our young people, are getting through their social media feeds and their different accounts that are contrary to God's kingdom invitation about the body? And, and it seems like we might need to get out of Dodge for a little bit somehow as a church and, and recapture the foundations of these things, because it's hard to compete against all the messages that are out there. Oh, that is a great point. In fact, one of my challenges in the book was to determine how many uh, advertising messages a person saw per day. And the research uh, varies, but it is thousands. And oh. so pe- people are exposed to a massive cultural catechesis or cultural kind of inbreeding about how to look at things. And so the church, you know, meets for one hour a week and thinks we got it done. And it's just, it shows that we have a real big challenge to, to counter the relentless cultural catechesis that's going on every day and night of the week. Now, I'm going to write down that, well, I just did write down that phrase, Timothy, cultural catechesis. It's not that we haven't been instructed in our ideas about the body, but maybe our teachers about it are pretty rubbish <laughs> at the end of the day. With that, we got to leave it right there for just a minute. When we come back, though, I want to get into uh, understanding this in light of uh, conversations on gender and sexuality. You have a phrase that describes the book that you've written, that we want to approach these things with grace and wisdom and confidence. And boy, oh boy, would that be a great invitation for people in the confusion of the day. So we'll be right back with more with Dr. Timothy Tennant and just a minute here on Mornings Without Carmen. Welcome back to Mornings Without Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today and having a really helpful conversation with Dr. Timothy Tennant about his book, For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. And Dr. Tennant, before we get any further into some of this topic, this book, For the Body, is out and available in all of the usual channels that we would find, whether ChristianBook.com or Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all of those places. But you actually also have some supplementary materials for this. So tell our listeners about that as well. Yes, this book is actually published jointly by Zonervan and Seedbed. And the Seedbed, Zonervan did the digital book that you just listen to the book, you knock on the radio or on the on the way to work, whatever. But the, uh, the Seedbed's put out actually a video series, uh, eight-part video series and a workbook. So it's small groups and uh, can watch it like a 15-minute exposition and then uh, discussion, et cetera. So it's meant to help the church to talk through these issues uh, even if they don't want to uh, read the book or to uh, go the normal way of talking about it. 
And Timothy, you you referenced before the break the idea that the church basically gets about an hour a week to sort of undo some of the cultural catechesis that we're living in day in and day out. When you talk about some of these materials that are available, it sounds to me like we need to be shepherded more than just an hour a week, that there's so much deconstruction work that has to be done amidst all the voices of the day. And and so... uh, Working through materials like this with maybe a small group and some shepherding and pastoral leaders would be helpful in undoing some of that, I would think. At least I'm guessing that was the design or the reason for you doing what you did. Absolutely. And the book actually concludes the last two chapters are advice to churches. Like how do you incorporate this into your teaching, your training? Because you're right, there's no way a church that's being faithful today can avoid these issues and just pretend they're not part of the cultural conversation that just demand a Christian response. And I know people are interested in being able to grow in their wisdom and confidence in, in this conversation. I know after 14 weeks of my class, it's not that my students walk out with absolutely everything they would ever need to know about these difficult topics of gender and sexuality. But I think what I see is that they, the, the paralysis around it is being broken a little bit. There is some confidence in that. And so I'm assuming as you've engaged in this topic, that's part of what you see is that we actually can grow in wisdom and confidence about how to approach these really hot, difficult conversations around gender and sexuality. Absolutely. In fact, uh, the number one response I received from the book, which I really appreciated, was people who said for years, I thought that Christians were, you know, I knew we were supposed to be against homosexual behavior or against gender reassignment, but I never knew why. Mm. I never knew what we were for. You know, what is the positive vision which just generates the Christian worldview and this book is really not about saying what we're against. It's about saying, what are we for? That's why it's called For the Body. And that question of why, I think, is where people are living, right, Timothy? I think people sort of have a general understanding. And even though the scriptures are getting maybe uh, interpreted in different ways around same-gender relationships by certain theological traditions, most people would continue to say, well, the Bible seems to indicate that same-gender relationships are inconsistent with God's kingdom. And, and they might say, well, the Bible says it's wrong or something. But it's that why question. And especially because so many people are living with friends and loved ones and daughters and sons that are walking in a different kind of sexuality. And it's not enough to just simply say, hey, stop doing that. The Bible says it's wrong. It's, it's really all the underpinnings of why and what's happening in people's lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, marriage, one of the things I've looked at was the fact that the challenges today are rooted back even in the earlier problems with marriage itself. What is the design? Does marriage have a design and a purpose? So for example, the fruitfulness of marriage is one of the designs of marriage. Well, that's, of course, lost in same-sex relationships. And so part of the desire of the book is to recapture a biblical view of marriage itself because a lot of these building blocks build upon one another, and, and our brokenness today is not a new thing. It goes back for generations. Let's, let's talk about marriage just uh, for a minute. How, how would you describe sort of the purpose and function of marriage? Again, the why underneath it, because I'm guessing, <laughs> Timothy, from the scriptures, there's more than just the idea is I'm going to try to find a companion with whom to have a romantic adventure for a lifetime based on a personality profile. I'm guessing the call is bigger than that in terms of our marriage. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about this in the book, just saying, you know, our, our culture divines marriage is a purely functionalistic uh, kind of arrangement uh, for you know, sexual and economic benefit. But mm. the, you know, the Bible really, really, uh, of course, uses marriage just as the creation is the icon of the incarnation. Marriage, of course, is an icon or a pointer to Christ and the church. So marriage is meant to be unitive. It's meant to be procreative. It's meant to be binary between a man and a woman, just as Christ and the church are different. 
It's meant to be, you know, self-giving. All of the sacrificial, all the things that the Bible teaches in Ephesians 5, other places, really lay out a very distinctive view of marriage, which is, in fact, different from the culture. And we have to learn how to celebrate this life of the church, because this is going to be a point where we can really flourish. Our marriages can flourish and be a sign uh, to the wider culture, which has experienced, of course, so much brokenness in marriage. Hmm. Again, the book is For the Body. It's Dr. Timothy Tennant. I can't recommend this highly enough. It's just one of the means of equipping yourself as a disciple, if you want to pick this up, to at least get into the conversation a bit. Timothy, we have about a minute, minute and a half left or so. One of the questions that I often feel stumped with in my class, and almost every student asks it, is so my friend or my loved one is saying that they are gay or that they are lesbian or that they're considering gender reassignment. What do I do? And and I, I see you're talking about the idea of grace. And is there some intersection of grace and truth in which we need to live here with people? How do we handle this when our closest loved ones are, are walking in these paths, understandably because of the ongoing cultural catechesis? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, even back as far back as Augustine, as you I'm sure know, Augustine identified what he called the four marks of the fall, and one of which is a sexual brokenness. And so it's not a new challenge or new problem. So we have to acknowledge the fact that people are really experiencing these challenges. These are these are not, you know, phantom things. These are right. real things. And so there's a whole pastoral side to this because there's a whole growing uh, army of people who are experiencing self same-sex attraction but are living as celibate, faithful Christians. They are they are determined to walk faithfully before God, and we should celebrate that, just as we have done with so many other points of brokenness uh, throughout people's lives. And the, the church has been good about you know, meeting people where they are, and the Bible has this wonderful dual message. On the one hand, this uh, extravagant embrace of the world, of the, the extravagant love of God in Jesus Christ for all people, but also the great transformation that happens when people, we pass through the cross, when we can receive healing and wholeness. So the church has to always embody both of those messages to the world. It's great stuff. I really appreciate the time. I have, I think, somewhere in between 1,000 and 2,000 more questions for you, but we're out of time <laughs> for this morning. Really appreciate what you brought into uh, people's lives in terms of being able to equip them in these difficult conversations. One more time, the book is For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. Have a great rest of the morning, Timothy. Thanks again so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Peter. We'll take a short break, wrap up the first hour of this show, and preview what's coming up next here on Hour 2 on Mornings Without Carmen. Um. Gee, Paul, that conversation with Timothy wasn't exactly terrible. I mean, amazing. That was amazing, <laughs> was amazing stuff, right? Really. Yeah, I just, we can't get enough of people who have thought through theologically, historically, mm-hmm. biblically about these issues, but make them accessible because these are very confusing topics because of the catechesis of the day. Yes, and it does call for wisdom and really, I, I, I guess I'm struck by so often we have our visceral reaction right. or our Twitter reaction or hot take, we need to move beyond that and actually thinking through a lot of these issues if we're going to help bring healing to people. Absolutely. Well, we'll continue these conversations and more. Up first, David Clark will talk about the nature of truth here coming up in the first part of the next hour on Mornings Without Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.